Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Marlena Williams, who is the author of Night Mother, A Personal and Cultural History of the Exorcist. Marlena, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So you um, put together this collection of essays and wrote about um, The Exorcist and your mother and your relationship um, and how that sort of bleeds into The Exorcist. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to put this book together, Why it came, how it came to be? Of course, yeah. So I think it all stems from the fact that my mother saw The Exorcist when it first premiered in 1973. She was 14 at the time, which is the same age that Linda Blair was when The Exorcist came out. She's the actress that plays the possessed child in the film. So she was 14 years old, living in the small town of Canby, Oregon, with a mother who was pretty devoutly Catholic, and her mom banned her from ever seeing The Exorcist. Um, But of course, my mom went out and saw it anyway, and it completely terrified her. You might even say traumatized her to the point where 20 years later, after she had had me, she banned me from ever seeing it. And, you know, I was really young. Like, I wasn't going to go see The Exorcist on my own, like pop The Exorcist into the VHS and, you know, sit and watch it. But she was still very adamant. Like, it's a terrifying movie about a little girl who becomes possessed by the devil and you should never see it. And... You know, I was going to Catholic school at the time, was being raised Catholic. And so I very much believed in God and believed in the devil. Uh, So I was scared of the movie just from hearing her, you know, tell me about it. And then I ended up seeing, accidentally seeing a clip from the film, um, the the now infamous spider walk scene where Reagan, the possessed child, goes down (laughs) the staircase in a backbend. And I just saw like a really quick flash of the movie, but it terrified me. You know, I had nightmares. I couldn't sleep at night. I spent all night staring out, you know, the sliver of my door waiting 
either be possessed by the devil or for, you know, the possessed child to come for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the exorcist has always been kind of a looming presence in my life. And then shortly after my mom died of cancer when I was 18, I kind of got re-obsessed with the film, not from finally not being so scared of it anymore, but looking at it as more of a way to understand her life and my own life and why this movie scared us so much. And also kind of trying to understand what the movie might say about American culture and, you know, the culture in which we both grew up. And so I kind of decided to take that obsession and turn it into a book. (laughs) So before we kind of get into the book, for those um, few probably folks out there who don't know a little bit about The Exorcist, can you kind of give a bit, and you go into such great sort of depth and detail about this throughout your book, but can you give sort of an overview of The Exorcist um, for folks before we get um, into the book? Yes. So I think, you know, very broadly, The Exorcist is the story of a 12-year-old girl named Reagan McNeil who gets possessed by the devil or by, you know, a demon. But it's also the story of her mother, who's an actress uh, named Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn, who kind of goes on this journey to figure out what's wrong with her daughter and save her. And it's also the story about these two priests, Father Karras and Father Marin, who are eventually called in to exorcise the demon from her from the young girl's body and so the film's directed by William Friedkin uh one of the great new Hollywood directors who passed away recently and it's written by William Peter Blatty who wrote the novel that came out a few years before the movie and then wrote the screenplay for the movie and I think you know you have the story of the film the story portrayed in the film but then you kind of also have the story surrounding the film and the moment when it premiered. And so, you know, when The Exorcist hit screens at the end of 1973, the beginning of 1974, it was a massive cultural phenomenon. You know, it it was hugely popular, but it was also hugely controversial with the news reports of people, you know, <laughs> vomiting in the theater, fainting. You know, there's stories that I haven't been able to substantiate on my own, but there's stories of people miscarrying or having heart attacks. Uh, You know, there's news reports about theaters keeping like smelling salts on, on hand in case people fainted to wake them up. There's stories about ambulances queuing up outside the theater to take, take uh, moviegoers to the hospital. And so I think some of that might be a bit exaggerated, But I also think the film was really, really shocking and unsettling for viewers. You know, a lot of people had never seen anything like that before, nothing that extreme. So, you know, when I was writing the book, I wanted to delve beyond those stories and those infamous audience reactions and kind of figure out, well, why were people reacting that way? And what can the film tell us about that point in time and American culture as a whole? So you've separated your book. You have what about 11, 12 s almost dozen essays in here, maybe around that. that. Right. <laughs> right? Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you separated into um uh, it, it, a couple of like four or five parts, and so can and you kind of can you kind of look, talk a little bit about that and and how you. Um, chose to sort of organize this and then maybe we can get into talking about sort of some of the things you talk about in each of those um, sort of parts of the book. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, So, I mean, this book took me quite a while to write and my original vision for it was for it to be a memoir. 
So I kind of thought it was going to be more of a hybrid, hybrid kind of narrative driven memoir, more chronological, kind of going through my own life and then maybe interspersing, well, not maybe, definitely interspersing things about The Exorcist throughout. But um, my original vision for it was not as an essay collection. Um, But I was really struggling to make the memoir format work. I'm not quite sure why. I just, it just was not flowing well. I think, I mean, I guess one of the reasons why it wasn't working was because that more narrative, chronological storytelling is just not necessarily my strong suit, at least over the course of an entire book. So when I eventually realized, why don't I try breaking it up into individual essays? That helped me a lot with, you know, maybe not having to be so directly chronological and, you know, cover every, you know, clearly cover my development throughout my life. I can kind of break it up a little bit and be non-chronological and, you know, have some essays that focus solely on the movie, some essays that, you know, talked about both, and some essays that focus more heavily on me. And I don't know, I guess when I was figuring out how to really structure those essays within the book, I mean, I don't know if this is going to make sense to anyone other than me, but I decided to follow the format of the Roman Catholic exorcism with how I like broke it up into parts. And so actually I'm going to look in the book to make sure I I get all the, um, (laughs) get it right. But so I kind of envisioned the first section, which is invocation. So that's actually how a Roman Catholic exorcism starts. I don't know if there's actually like a codified text of a Roman Catholic exorcism. You know, there's not one that like each priest use uses, but I found one version of what a priest might use and yes, starts out with invocations. So I kind of thought of that section as like establishing all of the themes that I was going to explore in the book, kind of establishing my life and kind of doing that really broad picture of the exorcist and, you know, the moment when it premiered and what's it, what, what it's about and some of the things that were really controversial about it. And then from there kind of move in, to like a really deep dive in summoning the evil spirit about things that I think are really troubling or problematic about the movie. Um, And so that section is definitely more like bringing in film theory, film criticism, history, and less heavy on me. And then um, moving into more personal things with the profession of faith, um, which I guess that's, you know, from what I can tell from reading the text of an exorcism is the point where the priest is kind of just like firing off prayers, firing off prayers. So I was thinking, you know, that would be the section where I really um, talk about my own faith and my own relationship to Catholicism and my mom's relationship to Catholicism. And then for the final section, oh, no, well, kind of the final section, laying of hands on the possessed which is where, you know, I think formally the priest is supposed to call the devil or the demon out of the possessed person's body. I was like, I'm going to get into some of the darkest shit in this last section. But also, you know, that idea of laying on of hands and like really thinking about um, illness and death. And then, you know, I have my final section concluding prayer of thanks, which isn't really a section. It's just my acknowledgments and like thank you at the end but um I you know again I don't know if that is clear to anyone else but it made sense to me when I was structuring it um so I just kind of ran with ran with it (laughs) I will just say I mean I grew up in a 
very Irish Catholic town and I was not an oh, Irish really? Catholic and have many, oh, recovering, many recovering. I mean, when I was growing up uh, in, in, in grade school, everybody who was Catholic got out of school on Friday afternoons to go to CCD. And those of us who were not yeah. Catholic just sat in school. Right. <laughs> um, so, so I will say that, yes, I, I mean, I didn't think about it as exorcism, but I saw that and I did see how you got much more personal. I, that was one of my questions. So you kind of answered it, right? Like that idea of how you, because when you move through this, it becomes really personal um, in that sort of third and fourth part. And you kind of see that coming through. So even though I didn't get the exorcism structure, cause I'm not Catholic. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, I saw what you're talking about totally comes through. So I'll yeah. just say, yes, it's there. <laughs> Thank you. And I think, yeah. And I think another reason why breaking it up into essays helps was because I did find like talking about and really working through some of the stuff about like my own adolescence and youth and girlhood was really difficult, like from a narrative level. So I kind of just decided I'm going to work through those, but just through like, not even necessarily talking about my personal experience on every page, but like looking at my personal experience through the lens of the exorcist and through like really looking closely at what's so troubling and problematic about its portrait of, you know, young women and kind of take some of the pressure off of me to focus solely on my like, own personal experience to make that point so it was kind of freeing and it was much easier for me, easier for me and kind of solved the like craft issue that that I spent years trying to work through so you know what you because you bring it up let's, can we talk a little bit about that sort of how it portrays young women because that was something like throughout that I appreciated even how you talked about kind of Linda Blair and them um sort of finding a young woman to play this role and and even how sort of Linda B Blair then becomes sort of situated in Hollywood and in this. Yeah. So um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and what kind of, um, as you were writing and, and, or, and throughout the book, kind of how you sort of see that and see that relationship or how the exorcist portrays young women in the seventies and how that even kind of compares to your life and what's going on now. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the exorcist is one of the most, at least in my opinion, one of the most disturbing portraits of, or, you know, disturbing representations of male fears about like the maturing female body. Um, it's kind of, I, I think, you know, people have kind of called it a menstrual panic movie, kind of like Carrie, you know, showing a young woman on the brink of puberty, turning into, turning into a monster and kind of demonizing her, you know, the changes in her body and her maybe sexual development and turning that into just like a, hysterical out of control shocking monstrous thing and so yeah I that always kind of that that was one of the things that fascinated me most about the movie is digging into that 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 portrait of a young girl but then you also have to think about okay well who's the young girl who you know had to do that on the screen and so from there i did really do a lot of research about linda blair's life and like what filming filming this movie was like for her 
I think she's a really fascinating figure and also like a really sympathetic figure. And she just seems like a cool person to me. Um, so I wanted to, you know, tell her life story and also kind of almost like vindicate her in a way because she's been she's been demonized by the culture, I think, a little bit, at least during that time. She's been kind of portrayed as like broken by the role and like kind of typecast from this role from the role of playing Reagan. And I think for a while, she just like really struggled to get work in Hollywood. She kind of became a B-movie, B-movie star, you know, in kind of like movies that I think are not that, you know, great. Um, and kind of like a sec- in, a, in a lot of very sexy roles. And um, I just kind of wanted to look at, you know, look at the course of her career and see how The Exorcist, playing The Exorcist, or playing Reagan, playing a possessed child at such a young age, shaped the rest of her career so yeah I mean she was cast I think you had a question about like her initial casting and yeah I think William Friedkin who is the director had a lot of concern about or he was worried about finding the right child to play Reagan because you know the success of the film really does ride on her performance and so he wanted to find a really really good actress but he also wanted to find kind of like a mature, smart, young actress who wasn't going to be like traumatized by the role. And so he, at the time, he thought he had found that in Linda Blair. And, you know, maybe he had. He um, cast her because she she knew what masturbation was when he asked. <laughs> um, she seemed really, at least according to his story, you know, he kind of asked you know, okay, this is this scene. Do you know what she's doing? And Linda Blair was like, yeah, she's masturbating. You know, no big deal. <laughs> you know, wasn't shy about it. Wasn't grossed out by it. Was very like frank about it. And he said that that's one of the reasons why he felt confident casting her. And, you know, on the one level, it does seem like she was pretty um, like level-headed and had fun throughout throughout filming like I do think the director Willen Freakin did make an effort to allow her to have fun and you know not yeah to just have have the set be a light place despite the intensity of what she's doing um but she's also said that filming was really hard for her and that you know the role was really intense and then you know you have the intensity of filming but then you have the intensity of after filming and the way she was seen in the culture after the film was released. And I think people really did want to believe that no young girl can film a movie like this and not be totally traumatized, not be changed at her core and not be totally broken. So there were a lot of like new stories about her being yeah broken by the role. And those don't appear to be true. You know, she seemed to have been remained pretty like level headed and calm and, seem to have, you know, not been um, totally traumatized by what she was doing. But I think there's a weird thing in, in the culture at the time where they just had to believe that, you know, an innocent girl couldn't possibly do this. And I think that um, that perception impacted the rest of her career and the type of role she was cast in and the way people talked about her and treated her in the media and in the industry. <laughs> Right. And you, and, and I think one thing that I appreciated that you brought up, like, 
we often forget, I think, that she was nominated for an Academy Award, right? Like for this role and and lost to another young actress. But um, like how as much as this was this sort of cultural phenomenon in this way and that people were talking about the horrors of it, there was also um, it was also looked at as before it's time in the film industry for many of the thing, many of the filming, the acting in it and all of that too. So you've got this film who is causing a moral panic, um, but is also being like touted as a, an amazing performances, right. And this amazing piece of film. So um, that is important too. And sort of comes through in what you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, one of the tensions I was working through in the book, because yeah, as you say, on the one hand, I do think it's like a miraculous feat of filmmaking. You know, there's lots of things about it that might strike us as kind of cheesy today, but I think for its time, it was very bold, you know, and it was this great kind of piece of early 1970s filmmaking, aside from being a horror movie and aside from, you know, creating this cultural firestorm, you know, on a technical level, it's really successful. And on a narrative level, it's really, really successful. And so, yeah, I, I, I love, I love watching the movie because it is really well done, but then, you know, there's, there's things going on with it that I think distract, like the, the horror of it is so distracting that I think it's easy to forget. Oh no, this is a movie where, yeah, as you say, Linda Blair was nominated for an Academy Award. So was William Friedkin. And I think the screen the screenwriter did. He won the Academy Award for best screen screenplay, best adapted screenplay. So I mean, you know, it was a horrifying movie, but it was actually you know a great movie making achievement at the same time that I think influenced a lot about horror, um, and you know probably influenced just other filmmakers from that time who maybe even weren't wanting to do horror but like those those 1970s dudes you know Coppola Scorsese Friedkin um Bogdanovich you know he was you know Friedkin was part of that crew and he was you know he happened to have made a horror movie but I think it's possible to also not look at The Exorcist as only a horror movie you know there's a lot more going on that I think maybe its status as a you know horror movie about a girl who gets possessed by the devil can obscure so can you talk because so there's a couple of questions I have in there when you were talking but can you can you expand on that too because that that idea that it's more than just a horror film because you do go into looking at like um some of the struggles with um not only this young child this character of the girl right but also the adult characters right and sort of the struggle with faith um with the priest and thinking about um her mother and so can you talk a little bit about that the ways in which this is more than just a horror film yeah so yeah i mean i think when i finally got around to seeing the movie when i finally just like in full when i decided okay i'm gonna overcome my fears and i'm gonna finally watch this movie in my like early 20s i think i did have the very common perception that it was just gonna be this pure horror story about a young girl who gets possessed by the devil but then when i watched it i was really pleased to see that there's a lot more going on than that i think it's possible to read it as just this kind of like moving story about a mother and a daughter. Um, Cause it really is this portrait of 
you know, the incredible closeness between them, the, the mom and her daughter, and then kind of the way their relationship devolves over the course of the young girl's possession, but the way Chris McNeil, the mother, continues to love her, continues to fight with her, fight, fight for her, and fight with her, I guess, um, but can, and, and continues to want to figure out what's wrong with her and to support her, and then in the end, to have found what's wrong with her, and, you know, then um, their relationship returns to normal and they're close again um and yeah i think there's also the plot line about father Karis, the priest and his mom and who becomes very sick and dies about like halfway through the movie so it becomes also a story about grief and about losing a parent and that storyline also connects to yeah father Karis's wavering faith and his own doubt about faith and about the priesthood. Um, so like at one point in the movie, he says, I don't want to be a priest anymore. I, I want to stop doing this <laughs> because it's too hard. He's a, I think he's like a, a seminarian. He teaches at, at the seminary. So he's teaching young priests who are in school to become priests themselves. So he's teaching young, you know, want to be priests, I guess. And he says, it's too hard. There's something, there's something wrong with the priesthood and, or at least with the young men studying at his specific seminary. And he's also saying, I don't know, I'm, I'm having a major crisis of faith. And so it does become this story about religious doubt. And at the end, I think, I mean, I think William Peter Blatty, the screenwriter would say, well, by the end, you know, father cares, his faith is restored because he realizes well, the devil exists, so God must exist. And, you know, at the end of the film, he does die, but he wants to receive his final rites from a priest. And so you could kind of read that as, well, in the end, his faith is restored. But, you know, throughout throughout it, it's a really interesting portrayal of religious doubt and grief and guilt and, you know, parent-child relationships. Right, which you... um then really think about that connection with your relationship with your mother, right? And some of the ways in which um, not only the film kind of parallels how you have thought about that relationship, but because of your mother's relationship with the exorcist and all of that um, sort of allows you to bring back and talk about that. And so do you want to um, talk a little bit about how you um, like start to make that connection throughout this and, and how you kind of really see um, your mother daughter relationship um, and, and those kind of parallels or the ways in which these sort of cross. Mm -hmm, definitely. I mean, I think I always knew the book was going to be about me and my mom, just because it seems like the exorcist and my mom are kind of like inextricably linked in my mind. So I knew like when I started out researching the movie and watching it again and again and then writing about it that it was going to definitely be about those two things like that was a i knew that from the beginning but i guess i didn't know until i rewatched the movie and started or until i watched the movie in full and started writing the book just how many connections there would be between you know the film and me and my mother's lives and our relationship so yeah i mean i think when i finally got around to watching the movie again as i said earlier like i I realized that it really is this mother-daughter story in a way, or at least you can interpret it that way. And so I, I kind of saw the movie as this, like, yeah, story of a mother-daughter who, you know, when the daughter's younger, they're really, really close. And the relationship is pretty 
pretty easy, you know, it's just happy and good. But then as the child gets older, you know, in the movie, she becomes possessed by the devil and turns into this like angry, monstrous thing who wants to like beat up her mom. So, you know, it takes it to the most extreme level. But, you know, I think you could also just kind of see that as what happens for, I think, a lot of mothers and daughters when the daughter you know, maybe gets gets a little older and becomes a teenager and wants to separate from the mother a little bit and wants to, you know, build her own self apart from, you know, her family life. And then I think that can create a lot of tension and antagonism between mothers and daughters, which at least I definitely experienced. I think my mother and I were really, really close. And then, you know, by the time I was like 13 or 14, I wanted to like separate myself from her a little bit and create a little distance. And I also just kind of became an angry, angsty teen, you know, and I think my mom, I th- of course she understood that, you know, but I also think she couldn't control the fact that it like hurt, <laughs> you know, and that it was hard, hard to see. And so I think that created a lot of tension between us. And I think, you know, our relationship was, was tough during my teenage years. I mean, we of course still like had, we were still close, um, but, you know, we fought a lot and we had a lot of times where we just weren't talking to each other, you know, and I think, I don't know, when I saw The Exorcist again, after she had died, I really kind of related to, I really kind of saw Reagan as an angry daughter who's, um, you know, maybe angry at her mom or like not able to connect with her mom in the way she once once could when she was really young and her mom being kind of scared of her and you know I don't know if you could say that in the movie Chris is angry with Reagan because she thinks you know her daughter's sick and there's obviously she's very aware that something is going on with her daughter that's maybe not a choice but I still think there's like fear and uncertainty and she is like who the heck is my daughter becoming I don't like this we need to figure this out and we need to get to the bottom of it and we need to bring in priests to restore her to the innocence (laughs) that she once had so you know I guess now that I'm saying that I'm like maybe it's kind of dark at the end that you know she the devil comes out of her body and she's once again this innocent pure little girl who can you know love and hug her mom but I also think that's beautiful that in the end you know after everything that they've gone through as a mother and daughter after you know her daughter literally punches her in the face and pukes, you know, all over the room and does a lot of really disgusting, horrifying things that they just kind of forget it and move on and say, you know, I love you and everything's forgiven. And I think that's a really, that was really beautiful. A really be the end of the movie was a really beautiful moment for me when I saw it again as an adult. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Right. And I appreciate how you really, like, reflect on that and think about, like, the film. But also then, um, I think when um, when you lose a parent, um, especially when you're younger, right, when you're in your teens, when you're in your early 20s, um, and then you have that time, you, you kind of think, of, especially when you lose a parent who... Um, you watch die right like you kind of talk about that like i wish i could have just done i wish i would have done this right that hindsight kind of thing i could have spent more time here i could have spent more time there and you sort of you know you do a nice job of like really having us sort of think through that and think about i think that that um is a sentiment that many folks who've lost their parents at young ages can relate to that right and relate to that feeling of what are the things i should have you know as you think back like what are the things i should have done or could have done if i knew that this was going to be the last time x y or z happened mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes yeah and i think you know the exorcist is about that in a way not the mother and daughter relationship but the relationship between the priest father Karis and his mom because he definitely has that guilt as well she she dies about halfway through the movie and it really sends him like through a spiral of like oh i should have been there more i should have done more i should yeah i should have gone over to her house more and spent more time with her and then i should have done more to you know prevent her from getting really sick and dying i should have been with her at the end and the guilt really really eats him up and so i also think you know when i saw the movie again as adult I related to his character too. Like I wasn't really expecting to, I was thinking, Oh, I'm only going to relate and find meaning in the portrait of Reagan, the young child, because that's, you know, who terrified me so much as, as a, a, a young girl when I saw it. But as an adult, I also really, really related to, to um, the priest character in a way that surprised me. And, you know, I mean, in a way it's different because I guess he's older. He's like a full, full grown adult when his mom dies. And so, you know, I think I have a a complicated relationship with my own guilt about my mom because that I didn't really fully work through in the book just because I couldn't. I was like, I'm still not sure <laughs> how I feel about this. So I'm just going to kind of leave it open in the end. But, um, you know, he's, you know, because I was so young when my mom died, I was 18. And so I feel, you know, I do feel like I should have been there more and I should have, I wish our relationship wouldn't have gotten so fraught, you know, during the final years of her life before she became really, really sick. You know, I genuinely like beat myself up about not being a kind enough, good enough daughter and not, you know, sitting by her bedside every single day. But I'm also like, you know, I was a kid. I, you know, I was trying my best, but at some point I have to give myself a break and be like, well, you were probably overwhelmed and didn't, you and I had no idea what to do, you know? And so, you know, I, I, I relate to Karis and I also, maybe understand that I was much younger than him and had a lot fewer like emotional resources and mental resources. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you sort of bring that through. And, and I think another thing that I appreciate is that you also 
really delve into like you talked about your Catholic faith and, and your faith and kind of um, what the the priest of my youth, right, is like the title of that. And so like it also gets into um, that idea of faith and guilt and, and 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 all of those things. So can you talk a bit about um, that, too, and writing about your sort of faith and writing about these priests and some of these situations that you kind of talk about and experience during? Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's definitely the cliche that, you know, Catholics are some of the most guilty feeling people on earth. So I definitely was like, "Hmm, that maybe this is part of my, my, my like debilitating sense of guilt. So that's on the one hand, why I wanted to like look back on my Catholic upbringing, but also just, there was no way I could look back on my youth without looking back on, you know, being raised Catholic and going to Catholic school um, from kindergarten until I graduated from high school. So yeah, I mean, I guess I I was never like a very devout Catholic person, you know, like I I was raised in it. And so when I was really young, I kind of just I believed in God and everything just because that's what that like that was just what I was literally what I was taught in school. So, you know, I believed in God like I believed in, you know, like math. <laughs> you know, it was just taught to me as a reality. And so but I was never like, you know, I was never like an altar kid, you know, I always hated going to church when my mom would make me, you know, so I wasn't a super devout person, but my mom was, she definitely was very Catholic. She didn't necessarily go to church every Sunday, but I think she wanted to always had very, very close relationships with the priests at my school. Um, so I think in that essay, Priests of My Youth, I wanted to look at her Catholicism and her, um, her like close relationships with the priests and kind of look at that, like, hmm, like it's a very interesting relationship, the relationship between a like a chaste priest <laughs> and a married woman, you know, like I it's just kind of fascinating to me, those relationships. And I think they are portrayed in some some movies and TV. Um, like the Sopranos has <laughs> has a um a priest and a and a wife plot line. Um Fleabag, she's not married, but she has a, she falls in love with the priest. And so in The Exorcist, you know, there's no like romantic relationship between Chris, Reagan's mom and Father Karis. But I, I kind of feel like there's a tension there between them. And they become quite, maybe not quite close, but you know, they're, they're bonded together through, through the experience that they, they go through when, you know, exercising the demon from <laughs> Chris's daughter. So yeah, I think in that essay, I just wanted to dive into all things priest in my own life, in my mom's life, and uh, um, in the culture. And I think, you know, The Exorcist does kind of hint at, like, some darkness in the priesthood. I think William Peter Blatty, the screenwriter, was Catholic, and he remained Catholic through his whole life, and wanted the movie to be, like, I mean, he wanted, I wouldn't say he would admit to saying he wanted the movie to convert people but he did want it to be like an affirmation of faith so it's a religious film but i also think like kind of subtly interwoven there's hints at like you know maybe there's a few things wrong with catholicism and maybe you know you know priests aren't these perfect holy you know figures that we we consider them you know they have their own demons they have their own darkness they have their own struggles and so yeah, I, I think that essay was was a fun one to write because <laughs> I could look back on my own youth, but also kind of 
look back on or look at the way priests are portrayed in the culture. And I don't think that's talked about too much. You know, priests are in a lot of movies, but they seem to not be like the focus. So I want to be like, hmm, how, how is, uh, how are we uh, looking at these very important, you know, figures in our society and in film and TV? <laughs> yeah, I will say too. One, I did love um, how you talked about how you and your brother kind of went down a rabbit hole to try and track oh, yeah. down one of because it was kind of perfect. Because I'm like, yes, that sounds exactly what you know. Remember this, you know. Let's go down this rabbit hole. Um, but I also I have just um, finished uh, Sinead O'Connor's memoir, um, remembering. And like, so your thing on the priest, like kept making me think of her kind of talking and her experience with sort of challenging the Catholic church. Yeah. Um, I really want to read that. So it was like, so all of that, right. And that idea of like what, you know, how she still has, she talked about her faith and, and having a faith, but still saying like, there's still a problem here. Right. And so I like that made me think about, yeah, all the ways in which we kind of skirt around some of those issues with um religion and especially with the catholic church in those ways yeah yeah that's really interesting that you bring that up because when did she do the like tearing what year was did she tear up the picture of the pope (laughs) yes in 19 yep yep in 1992 (laughs) she talks about how yeah yeah she was very ahead of her time you know like I think at that time, she experienced so much vitriol and hate for what she did. But then, you know, fast forward 10 or so years, and the culture kind of, kind of caught up to her. And I was kind of, I was going, I was in middle school, just like at the time where the Boston Globe story broke about like the cover up of, you know, molestations in the Catholic Church. But I think I grew up during a time where there was much more ambivalence about priests, you know, but I, you know, I was Catholic. So there was still a lot of like respect and awe for them as leaders. But also, I think, a growing understanding that, you know, Sinead O'Connor maybe helped (laughs) set and, you know, planted the seed at least. Um, So yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I, I have to read her memoir. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, these two books like kind of work well together. <laughs> um, so I mean, we talked a bit. We I'm jumping around, but I have to ask you because, I, and I said to you before, one of my favorite um, chapters in this is when you, um, or one of my favorite essays is when you look at the masturbation scene and how you yeah. kind of talk about that. So can you just talk a bit about because it's such it's such an important scene. It's such a scene that's talked about. Um, can you talk about your take or, or how you sort yeah. of grapple and talk about that? I'd love for you to share that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the most famous scenes from the movie, right? I mean, it's this very disturbing scene where a mother walks in on her daughter violently masturbating with a crucifix and then her head does a full 360. She says a bunch of profanities and then her mom walks over to stop her. She like shoves her mom's face in her vagina and then punches her mom in the face. You know, it's like a ridiculous, crazy, over the top, terrifying, maybe kind of funny, <laughs> funny scene, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I knew if I was writing a book about The Exorcist, I had to dive in to that scene. And there's so much to say about that scene. I mean, on the one level, I think it's important to point out that, like, William Peter Blatty really purposely put that scene in the movie. Because he wanted that scene to be, he, he, 
he was like, you know, I'm writing this movie, or I guess in the novel first and then in the movie. So he's writing this story about a young girl who becomes possessed. And how do I, you know, how do I, as a writer, convince her atheist mom to go to a priest? And so in his mind, he's like, what's the most horrifying, graphic, like unbelievable thing I can have this young girl do on screen? And he decided that was masturbating with a crucifix. Um, and, and so it is disturbing on a like, you know, watching it is quite disturbing, even if it looks a little cheesy now. But also if you think about so what's the um, what's motivating him as a writer to see this idea of a young girl masturbating is so disturbing and horrifying. I mean, you know, you have the crucifix, like defiling a crucifix, which is shocking. But I think, you know, even without the crucifix, it would probably be unsettling to a lot of viewers to see because it's a child so you know she's becoming a teenager and so I think it like plays on a lot of fears about young girls growing into their sexuality or young girls yeah you know having a sexuality at all and it like has to turn that into monstrous because at the time you know I think we're in a different moment now but I think at the time it was so hard to imagine and grapple with that it I think it did like really disturb, disturb a lot of people. And I think that's been the thing in The Exorcist that at least like feminist film critics have critiqued the most as it just being this kind of like turning Reagan's sexual development, her, you know, entry into womanhood as this monstrous graphic out of control nightmare instead of just like a normal thing <laughs> that, you know, happens. And I mean, on the one hand, you know, puberty does suck and there's lots of like horrible things about it um but i also think you know the way specific way it's portrayed in this movie isn't like it's 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 not you know it's not showing it from her perspective first of all so it's like our sympathies aren't with the girl who's going through puberty however it's portrayed it's on the people who see it and are so shocked and like disturbed and terrified terrified by it um and you know i kind of wanted to see like maybe maybe the because you know it's been highly criticized by film film critics and i think it's easy to see why but i was like you know maybe there's the way to see it as kind of radical you know because it is showing a child masturbating which i don't think had ever been shown on screen before maybe even a woman masturbating maybe even a person i'm not sure you know i don't know enough about film history to to say but definitely in a mainstream movie it was the first time that had been depicted on screen so it's kind of like that's kind of cool that they went there and to like acknowledge it at all on the screen, you know, maybe in its own twisted way was a kind of progress. Um, I don't, in the end, I don't think that's the right reading, but I kind of wanted to look at it and see, well, maybe, you know, showing this and having, you know, having it portrayed on the screen is kind of cool. And I actually been talking to the academic, um, S. Trimble. She's um, a professor in Canada. And she talks about like seeing the exorcist as a young queer person and actually thinking Reagan was like this badass, awesome character, like who was wild and powerful and unapologetic about being different and, you know, spit in the faces of everyone who was trying to control her. So I think, you know, if you want to read it like that, that's kind of cool. I don't think I I can take it that way personally, <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe uh, there is some openings there to have a more positive, radical reading of that scene. 
<laughs> so, I mean, there's so, I mean, we could probably talk forever about every scene because there's, I mean, so many and like what they've brought in and what they brought out. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because you have a whole essay about James Baldwin, um, seeing the exorcist and you bring him back up sort of towards the end. And so can you talk a bit about that choice of talking about James Baldwin, talking about the, talking about James Baldwin, talking about the exorcist and and sort of James Baldwin's take um, and why that is so important to you? I don't think a lot of people know that James Baldwin wrote about the exorcist. I, I certainly didn't before I started writing the book and I kind of found that essay um, that he wrote about the exorcist on a fluke. Like I was in a bookstore on his birthday and there was a display of his books. And there's um, one of his lesser known books called, um, wait, sorry, what is it called? I'm happy, what? The Devil Finds Work. Sorry, I can't believe I completely blanked on that. Um, one of his lesser known books, The Devil Finds Work. And, you know, I was like, writing and researching the book and I just saw the word devil you know and just picked it up like I didn't even know there was going to be an exorcist <laughs> essay in the book but I was kind of in this mindset where anything satanic anything devil I was going to pick up and read so I picked up the book and then there's this really like powerful essay about him seeing the exorcist when it first premiered and kind of being like wait why are all these people so scared about the of this movie you know like he he kind of talks about how as a you know young gay black man, he knows what real evil and real cruelty and real violence looks like. And it looks nothing like the type of evil and violence and cruelty that's portrayed in The Exorcist. It looks nothing like this monstrous young girl. It's actually like a very real reality that's, <laughs> that we enact against each other every day, or at least white society enacts against you know black people and other like marginalized groups every single day. And so he kind of argues that the exorcist is this kind of like <sighs> delusional portrait of like a delusional understanding of what evil evil is. And it's kind of the United States refusing to look at itself clearly and just kind of deflect and you know be scared of this little little white girl (laughs) um and he I mean he says a lot of really really interesting things I mean he's really hard on the character of Chris McNeil um Reagan's mom he kind of thinks she's just kind of this shallow second wave feminist who doesn't really care about like raising a good daughter she just cares about like protecting her place in society and raising a daughter who will also be you know rich and successful (laughs) it's a pretty i don't know if i like agree with that but it is an interesting it's an interesting way to see that character as kind of this second wave feminist who doesn't care about helping anyone you know but herself so i thought that was an insight that i hadn't read i i hadn't seen anyone make that point before and i think maybe only you know only he could um and i think you know you don't think about the exorcist as a movie that has anything to say about race because there's no black people in it like it can't even say something problematic about race because you know it's it's not like a movie where the black person dies first and you can you you can you can read that as like you know seeing black people as expendable or you know as a way of showing how strong the monster is i think that's what robin armings coleman has argued about the problem you know killing black people first in the movie that doesn't happen because the only characters of color are like a nurse at one point and some kids in the background you know so I never thought about like looking at 
the way race is portrayed in The Exorcist until I read James Baldwin's essay, James Baldwin's essay, and he um he sees it as like the he he, he sees this sees it as this really damning portrait of like white delusion, and um I thought that was really really fascinating, and I would highly recommend people to at least read that read that part of the book. Um, he he really I you know he doesn't. He says he grew up seeing movies and loving movies and kind of using film as a way to understand white society. But I also think, you know, I don't think he's a film scholar by any means. And so I, I find myself kind of disagreeing. Like he really hates black exploitation movies and like saw them as like a negative, like scourge. And I don't know if I agree with that, but he's raising a lot of interesting ideas. Um, and I think it says a lot. He doesn't talk about many movies in that book. Like he, the other movie he talks about is the um, the Billie Holiday movie that came out, I think in 1973 as well. The Lady Sings the Blues maybe. Um, and he really hated that movie <laughs> as well. But um, I think it's telling that The Exorcist is one of the few movies that he decided to write about. Um, and so learning that James Baldwin had some ideas about the movie also really shifted shifted my, my understanding of it. <laughs> So we've been talking for a while. So I, well, I'm going to ask you a very cliche question because, um, but it's like, well, it will be October in a couple days. So when we're talking about this, it'll be October when this comes out, we've got what the 50th anniversary. And so we've got this new exorcist coming out. So you got thoughts on like, what do you, have you thought about this? Like, what do you want to talk? You want to say anything about this new movie? (laughs) I do. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't seen the new movie. It's like coming out in a week. I'm sure I'll have so many more thoughts <laughs> once <laughs> once I see it. But I do have thoughts even from like just watching the trailer. I think because, you know, I was kind of talking about earlier how there's been a lot of criticism um, about the way the film portrays young women and like the way it reflects a lot of like cultural fears about young women like a cultural kind of like hatred of young women and so I was kind of thinking like if they're going to do another exorcist who's ever making it will have read those you know critiques and they're not going to make make it be about a possessed teenage girl like surely they're smarter than that at this point yeah (laughs) right no now it's about two yeah I was like you know why don't you make (laughs) make it about an adult man or something you know maybe that's too hard it's not as scary you know for some reason we are very scared of seeing young girls seeing this like like innocent young girl turn into a monster but I was a little like oh okay you know (laughs) they haven't learned their lesson (laughs) and yeah it has this it it appears yeah so it's two girls it's a a white girl and a black girl now maybe they think that's being more progressive (laughs) because who knows um but it appears to have like a kidnapping plot line where you know the two girls disappear after school one day and you know no one knows what happened to them when they're in the woods um and so i don't know i think that's also troubling that like you know we're still it's a very like true true crimey take on the exorcist genre or the exorcist franchise so i mean i'm interested to see what they do with that i think it's cool that alan burston's coming back 
like when I first my first reaction was like oh that's cool like because she's such a good actress so I was like maybe it's actually good you know maybe she read the script and was like oh this is doing something interesting and new and I want to be in this movie but the more I think about it I'm also like we're just in a time where all actors are going back for reboots like I feel like there's no longer any shame about it they're just like they're gonna pay me a lot I'm gonna do it everyone's doing it so the more I think about it I'm not sure that's necessarily evidence that the movie's going to be good I I'm going to go in with an open mind I think I think I don't think the trailer looks that good the movie looks that good based on the trailer but I will say when I saw the trailer it was um I think I was going to see Oppenheimer so it was like a packed theater you know packed to the gills and that was one of the trailers they played before Oppenheimer and people really reacted to it like you know, there's a couple other trailers before and people, you know, no reaction. But then people were like, you know, people were laughing. Some people were like, you know, you could tell they were a little like unsettled by it. People were just kind of talking to each other and whispering to each other. And so I don't know when that happened. I was kind of like, you know, this does show that something about these movies, this franchise, it stirs something in people. It gets people talking. It gets people, it gets reactions out of people. So I'm really excited to see what those reactions are going to be are, are you going to see it <laughs> oh yes I'll go see it uh, yeah. yeah but I was just like uh, they always it's like let's double down let's put two girls and then it gave me this very much like um uh what Stephen King Red Rum uh uh the Shining kind of uh, you know like the two gr- I'm like okay so like two girls are supposed to be scary like this whole thing so I'm like what are we doing like yes I'm always <laughs> but we will see we will we will see what happens um yeah, uh, I'll, they, I'll be in the theater watching it hopefully on the <laughs> on october 6th when it premieres <laughs> if not shortly after yeah so <laughs> so um so my fun so yes i had to know like even though yes it's coming out soon um but so my final question is always um is there anything sort of this book's coming out on the 20th of october um, so anything either with this book that you want to promote, anything sort of new you're working on, like what kind of like self-promotion do you want to do? <laughs> I don't have anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of any, I mean, I'm just doing promotion for the book. I don't have any new, I'm not working on anything new. Um, I think I'm just excited for this book to come out at this time, not only because the new movie is coming out, and not only because the 50th anniversary is approaching um, in December, but I do think there's kind of these odd parallels between, you know, the time when the original Exorcist premiered in 1973 and now. I think, you know, when the Exorcist premiered, it premiered almost a year after Roe v. Wade had been decided. Um, It premiered, like, during the um, water tape hearings, so there was a lot of, like, talk about presidential misconduct um it premiered you know several years after kind of the civil rights movement some of the racial reckoning that were happening in the 60s and some of the like racial uprisings that were happening at the end of the 60s um you know kind of the height of second wave feminism and a lot of conversations about women's place in society and so you know kind of thinking about that moment and then thinking about it now i do think there's a lot of really interesting parallels i mean a year ago, Roe v. Wade was reversed. (laughs) So we're now living in a post-Dobbs world. Um, We're also living several years 
after a lot of um, racial uprisings in this country and like a really um, needed and overdue and incomplete racial reckoning. So we're in a similar moment there. You know, Trump's been indicted how many times? Four. You know, so we're also, you know, in this time where we're really looking at now it's an ex-president, but, um, you know, I I do see kind of a a similar similarity um, in that respect as well. So I'm kind of, I don't know. It's it's it's. Uh, I'm excited to see maybe the way the new movie reflects some of that, but also just like it's just interesting to me how how these how um even 50 years later <laughs> we're in a similar place in this country, <laughs> and I think The Exorcist is a cool way to look at look at those. Um, I mean, just look at our country and its problems. <laughs> <laughs> I know we hope it changes, but it never does, right? Exactly. Or, so or we come back. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, well, thank you, like Marlena Williams, who wrote Night Mother, a personal and cultural history of the exorcist. Thank you so much for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit